Amen. Please be seated. I'm bringing uh, four special messages uh, unique to this Advent season. They are geared towards giving us uh, reflection points from God's Word about uh, what He did, the Lord God did, to bring Jesus to save us from our sins. And the theme I'm taking is the line of Jesus. Now, there are many people in the Scripture that lead up to Jesus' coming. I've only picked four. Uh, and the first week was Adam, the first person, uh, showing how Adam connects to Christ, how Christ fulfills uh, what Adam failed at, and he is the second Adam. Uh, then last week, tried to point out the connection between Abraham and Jesus. Uh, Abraham, uh, called the father of the faith, uh, called Father Abraham, and how we are sons and daughters of Abraham when we trust in Christ, and the connection there. Uh, we also learned that Abraham uh, is part of the fulfillment of the seed that was promised. And then today we're going to focus on David. David is arguably the most popular person in Scripture other than Jesus. Uh, one writer says that David is prob probably the greatest character in the Bible other than our Lord himself. Certainly more chapters are devoted to his story and his songs than to anyone else. And that's true. I think that's true. David was the second king of Israel... Uh, he is, stands in stark and glorious comparison to the first king, Saul. David was really everything that Saul was not. David was the very picture of what you would want in a human king. And I think any of us can, can see why it is sometimes said that the best government would be to have a king who is righteous. Uh, but we recognize that governments like ours come up because of bad experiences with kings who weren't righteous. And that's the common experience of humankind with kings, is they're unrighteous. Now, there are some cases throughout history where kings have shown themselves to be just and righteous, and it's been a glorious time for the people living under that, but that's rare. King David stands out as one of those kings, one of those few kings who really brought justice and righteousness to his, governor, govern, uh, his governing and to the kingdom that he was over, and to the people. They really experienced it. He's a picture of what you'd want in a human king for most of his reign. But David's not the hero. David's not there for David, for his place in history. Because we know the totality of his history, we have it recorded. David points to the greater king, the greatest king even. I want to trace just in brief this morning, chronologically, as you have on your insert, some of the passages of Scripture that kind of unfold for us the significance of King David related to Jesus. I put it in chronological form because I think we're often ignorant of the, the amount of years between some of these fulfilled promises of God. I mean, hundreds and even thousands of years happen between these texts. The Bible was not written by one person in a short period of time. Uh, God's Spirit moved in human authors over the course of time to speak His Word, put it into writing, and then preserve it over the years. And we have this wonderfully unified message, even though it has been, uh, it comes from huge periods of time in between the stories that we read. So I want to track a bit of David's life, at least his purpose, and how it connects to Jesus. Now before we read the first passage, and you'll need this insert in your bulletin to kind of follow along. Before I read the first passage, be reminded of what leads up to David in his birth and his significance. 
In the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 3.15, after man has fallen into sin, and there seems to be no hope, you have God responding or revealing his plan of redemption to save people from their sins. And to do that, the sin of Adam and Eve has to be reversed, and the devil has to be defeated. And it's in seed form, it's the gospel in seed form, but you have in Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent who's just uh, provoked the fall, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And here's the gospel in seed form. He, singular, he shall bruise your head, which is a mortal wound when you get wounded in the head and you're a snake. You're going to die. That's what it means. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Not a mortal wound, but he'll strike something against that seed of the woman who is to come. So in Genesis 3, verse 15, we have a setup for the whole of the Bible. You, you see the Bible and what God displays there as an outworking of the promise made in Genesis 3. So the people in Scripture that God records their lives and their significance, they all connect to God fulfilling the bringing of the seed, the seed being Jesus, who will crush the head of the serpent. That's why we celebrate Jesus' coming, because when he came as a baby, that began the process of his life that would prove his credibility, his being God's seed, to crush the head of the serpent and do so at the end of his earthly life on the cross. But he had to be born like us and live a life that was like the lives we live, only not fail the test that Adam had. But after this time in Genesis 3 that we have the promise given to us, uh, many, many years go by, thousands of years perhaps go by, before we're introduced to Abraham. Only a few chapters in the Bible, but now you have Abraham in 2000 B.C. 2,000 years before Jesus came, Abraham was born and lived. In Genesis 17, God continues to show how he will fulfill the bringing of the seed. Genesis 17, 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, he says this to Abraham, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. We get a little bit of a picture of the plan of God to bring through Abraham the seed who will bless the nations. Not just one nation, the nations. God's going to bring his promise to pass. You know there's quite a bit of time that happens between Abraham and David. Lots of events occur in the nation of Israel the descendants of Abraham ethnically grow and grow and grow. We know that Abraham is the father of many nations because he's the father of those who trust in Christ. That's his real significance. But immediately, God grows this nation called Israel. And he raises uh, up Abraham and his children. And Isaac comes. And then from Isaac comes Jacob. And Jacob comes Joseph. And the 12 tribes of Israel are established by all those children of Jacob. But they are in Egypt on a friendly basis for a while, but it doesn't take long before they're enslaved. Now that seems like a bad thing, and it is if you're one of those people, but God's doing a greater work. He's growing that nation to be over two million people before the exodus happens. Two million strong when Moses is raised up to lead them out, out of Egypt into the promised land. We know it's a bumpy ride to the promised land. It doesn't happen exactly like it could have, why did it not? Because of the same old, same old man doesn't follow the instructions of God. And through this conquest, an imperfect conquest, the Israelites take the land. Now they occupy the land. They've got people. God gives them the law at Sinai. They've got land they're in. 
people, law, and land, the, na- the makings of a nation, they look around, all they have are judges ruling over, prophets ruling over. You know what? Look at the Philistines, they say. We want to be like them. God's direct rule over us is not enough. We want a king like everybody else. In the whole series that Pastor Nathan has preached through in 1 Samuel is a story of what happens when you ask for someone else other than God to rule. And he gives Saul as the king. Really is a demonstration of what it's like to have an earthly king. But God in his grace, even despite man's fallenness and his disbelief, raises up another king. A king who will forecast the ultimate king to come, who will really, in this truest sense, bring God back to the throne, if you will, literally. And here he raises David from Saul. We're starting to see that story as Pastor Nathan begins 2 Samuel. But now it comes to the text that I want us to see. It's on the top of your page. 2 Samuel 7. This is the promise that God makes to David that impacts every one of us here. This is not just something written uh, 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. That's when it was written, 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years after Abraham, 1,000 years before Christ. He promises David the following. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I, look, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. Now before I read verse 15, yes, there's immediate fulfillment we see in Solomon, David's son. And we see how when Solomon sins, God chastises him. And we see throughout the history of Israel, as the king's sin and the people's sin, he chastises them and brings them back to some level of focus. But ultimately, the picture that he is painting in David comes in verse 16. Verse 16 of this passage. In your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So an expectation is created that when there are times of, of decline in Israel, which happens often, the promise comes back to mind to the Israelites, that, but he promised that there would always be a king on the throne. So an expectation, a messianic expectation. Messiah means the anointed one. David was the Lord's anointed. There is a messianic expectation that God would provide for his promise that there would be a king on the throne. So that is what creates the messianic promise when Israel falls apart and has no king that they can identify personally. They know it's from the house of David. He's going to be from the house of David. When will he come? When will the anointed one come? When will Messiah come? When will the king like King David come. That's the picture David gives, and it's the expectation he creates with the promise that God makes through David, and this what is classically known as the Davidic covenant. Through David comes Jesus, who is the everlasting king over an everlasting kingdom, and he is our king. Let's pray. Lord, we are in awe when we see how you have worked things together for your good how you have brought this, uh, this history of redemption before us in your word and laden in it is so much for us to glean and live by. I pray that you would direct us very clearly as we consider this. 
But Lord, especially as we focus upon your use of King David as a precursor, as a foretaste of what would come in Jesus. Lord, give us a great appreciation and love for our King Jesus. And I pray that we would be, especially at this Advent season, a celebratory about what it means that we have our Messiah. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One author calls the kingship of David, when David becomes king, a new era for the people of God, dawn, when the Lord established his everlasting covenant with David. Remember, everlasting covenant, that's the words used. It's the same kind of words used with Abraham to be your God forever. Now I will have a king on the throne forever. These connect, these covenants collide. They come together and then come out of it with more clarity. And we now start to see what God's doing in this plan of redemption. Uh, and then we start understanding that how he might or where he might bring the seed from, the Messiah from. This author says also that gone would be the days of insecurity, corrupt judges, and harassment from enemies. Can you imagine that? In any government, peace and security would be the new state of affairs as Israel enjoyed the reign of a king who promoted justice and righteousness according to the law. And even for all the war that David fought, the people enjoyed a great period of justice and righteousness under him, and even more so, really as a remnant of David's rule through Solomon, a great time of peace because of this rule in justice and righteousness. He promises to establish David's throne through his sons. Now, you remember last week I tried to bring out, as parents, if you were to promise me that my children would walk stably in the Lord, that they would be firm in the Lord, and their their life would be shaped by commitment to the Lord, whatever uh, God would bring into their lives, they would prosper in Christ. That would be the greatest promise you could make for me. It would be the most encouraging thing you could say to me. It's what I would live my life for is to see my children grow that way and be established that way. Well, if you're a king, what would be the greatest assurance you could receive? And here God's covenantal nature comes into being as he promises a king something that is greater than anything that could be promised or has been fulfilled, that he would have an everlasting kingdom, that his throne would last, that his name would be born upon this seat forever. I mean, what king could be guaranteed this? There's no king that has ever lived on earth that has that kind of guarantee. There have been some long dynasties, uh, but no king has had his family stay on the throne forever. And that's the promise to, to David. It's a powerful promise. It's the greatest one you could make to a king to give him security about his purpose and what he's there to do. My steadfast love, it says in verse 15, will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Immediate fulfillment is Solomon, but certainly a longer-term one. In verse 16, really the, the most important passage of this covenant, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So the Israelites have expectation. They have a messianic expectation that the Lord's anointed will always be in the throne. So when The Lord's anointed is off the throne physically and they're taken into captivity by the Babylonians and the Persians in this period of time where there's really no king to point to and the Romans in a mocking way put Herod in the throne. The Israelites still are looking for the Messiah. We, our king, the king that will last forever. Who will he be? Who will the son of David be? And the term son of David becomes the the label for the the Messiah who will come. But the buildup is beautiful in the Old Testament because you see Israel declining, but God's promise is growing. And we come to the book of Isaiah, the greatest of all the prophets with regard to the messianic hope. And he writes in Isaiah 7, 
before the passage that I have there listed for you. In Isaiah 7, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. That's written 300 years after David, 700 years before Jesus. Then in Isaiah 9, I think probably the greatest of the prophecies that Isaiah gives about the advent of Christ. It's there put on your, it's the second passage on your insert. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this is, verse 7 is where we know that this is going to be fulfilling the promise to David too. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, which is an everlasting throne, we know. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Clearly, a prophecy of the one who will fulfill the promise to David to be on the throne, to be the king, the, the king of God's people. David pictures this in his earthly reign, a greater fulfillment of David. In Luke 1, verse 31, the next passage on your insert, we fast forward 700 years to 1 B.C., the year that Jesus was born. I don't think you say zero, but you know what I mean. Luke 1, 31 through 33 records, and look at the words. In a way, maybe you haven't looked at them before, having read them so often. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This is Messiah. This is the Lord's anointed. You will have the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the king to end all kings. This is the king of kings. And David was the first. And it was through David that God gives the promise of King Jesus, the anointed one. You know, this helps us understand why the book of Matthew, which is the gospel primarily written to a Jewish audience first, would refer to Jesus the way, the way Matthew refers to him so often. If you see the next passage, which uh, is the time frame for Matthew, obviously is, is recording the life of Jesus written probably near 40 A.D., but he records the events of Jesus' life. It starts out the very first verse in the book of Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says, the son of David. It doesn't say the son of Abraham first. You might think that would be priority. Or the son of God or the son of man, which are other terms that have their reasons for being used in the places they're used. But it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. A clear reference to the fact that he's the Lord's anointed. The son of David means Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. You know, when you go do a perusal through Matthew and see how people view Jesus, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, you have a recurring theme that connects to this messianic expectation and hope. In Matthew 9, 27, two blind men come to Jesus, and they cry out for him to heal. And listen to what they say. Heal us, son of David. The Pharisees, when they hear about the healings and the casting out of demons— They ask themselves, in Matthew records, can this be the son of David? 
because son of David synonymous with Messiah. That's what it means. That's the kind that he's the Messiah King. In Matthew 15, 22, a person who is not a Jew, a Canaanite woman, hearing of Jesus casting out demons, runs to Jesus and says, because her daughter is oppressed by a demon, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Have mercy on me, my daughter is oppressed, son of David. Messiah, you can do this because you are the king of all nations. You're the only king I can come to for this kind of relief. In Matthew 20, 30 and 31, two more blind men come up to Jesus and they say, Son of David, heal us. And then there is Matthew 21. I have 21.9 there noted on your insert, the next passage. 33 AD, the end of Jesus' earthly life. Before he goes to the cross, before he goes to Jerusalem, it says in verse 8, before the verse you have there printed, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And look what they say. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, which means save us, save now, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now, there's misunderstanding, no doubt, from that crowd about the nature of his kingship. But there's no misunderstanding how he fulfills the the prophecies, and it seems very clear that this is the son of David, the king, to end all kings, the one who will free them. And they don't know what they're saying completely, but it's true, ultimate freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the results of sin. Son of David. There is a, another episode in Matthew which is very interesting and intricate, so listen closely to what happens. Jesus has an interchange with the Pharisees who are always trying to disprove that he is actually the son of David, the Messiah. They can't stand the idea that this guy, out of their realm, would be the Messiah. But there's a growing realization of his power and what he has done and what connects with prophecy. There's no doubt they know this, but they also know this is, a, uh, this is a moment of loss of power for them and what they had established. And they're doing everything they can to wrestle away the idea from the people that this might be the son of David. So Jesus talks to them personally, and he says this, how is it that David, in the Spirit, talking about David when he's writing Scripture, when David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he son? Jesus is trying to explain that from Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, most quoted by Jesus for sure, is really about God the Father and God the Son. And David's just praying this prayer by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make the nations a footstool. It's a messianic prophecy of the role of the, prophecy of the Messiah who will be king sitting at the right hand of God. And he's calling him son, and he's using this language. And he's trying to quiz the Pharisees about who could be spoken of in Psalm 110. Well, just before that, Jesus says to them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Christ is just a Greek word for the anointed, the anointed one, Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Whose son is he? Why would David write, the Lord says to my Lord? And why would David say that he has reference to him as a son. 
He's simply laying out the fact that Christ is Messiah and he is the fulfillment of David, King David. And this is a great verse. Verse 46 in Matthew, uh, 40, uh, in Matthew when he says, And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It was clear who Jesus claimed to be. It was clear who Jesus was. Through David came Jesus, who is the everlasting king over an everlasting kingdom, and he is our king. David foreshadowed Christ in at least three particular ways. First, David was a shepherd. We know this from his beginnings. But that shepherding that he took as a young boy watching sheep carried into the way he was king. He, he, unlike Saul, really did care for the people that God had given him to care for, to watch over. He shepherded the flocks of people. But Jesus, in the ultimate sense, is the good and great shepherd. He's, he's the, the, the final shepherd because no one could care more for his flock than him who was willing to lay his life down for his flock. David was also a deliverer. He was a, he was a military king. He was a man of war in a time of war, and he was called to deliver the people from the hands of the enemies. He was called to do this over and over and over again. It starts with Goliath. That's the big picture of what his role would be. But then with the Philistines and other enemies who raised, raised up against Israel, he was used by God to deliver them time and time again. He was a figure of Christ, the Savior, who has delivered us from the most menacing of all possible enemies. The Philistines are nothing compared to the, to the devil and to sin and to the death that we have because of those things. He delivers us from that. He is the great ultimate deliverer. But David pictures it first. David was a mighty king. He was a king who gathered the 12 tribes in unity for that brief time where they were unified. And he achieved this not by making himself feared, but David did it much differently than Saul did. He did love the people. Yes, he was flawed in many ways. We know that about David. But he was used by God to love the people, and the people loved him largely back. Through his line, the kingdom was at its height. But the Lord Jesus is the ultimate king. As Psalm 110 says, Jesus is the king doing the work now, even as we speak, of subduing the nations to himself in his time, person after person, and ultimately will re-establish God on the throne in the way it was in the time of Israel, but with the Messiah in his fullest sense. The catechism question we read earlier beautifully captures who Jesus is as the fulfilled king. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. That's what he does, to subdue you to himself. You have been subdued by Jesus. That's why you love him, because he has subdued you to himself. In ruling and defending us, he rules us, but he loves us, and he defends us. He rules us and defends us. And in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Jesus as Edmund Clowney said, stands in David's place. He is also, in this sense, our warrior king. It is he who breaks through the enemy lines to bring us the water of life, the way David brought his troops 
that water. In the book of Revelation, we have a wonderful picture that's captured by Handel and his Messiah. The seventh angel blew this trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Christ means anointed. It means Messiah, son of David. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Through David came Jesus, who is the everlasting king over an everlasting kingdom. And he is your king. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for our Messiah. And we're so grateful for your picture of him in David and your work in him through David and all the time between him and now. And using the words of a great hymn, I pray you have come, thou key of David, you have come. You have opened wide our heavenly home. You have made safe the way that leads on high. And you have closed the path to misery. We rejoice, for Emmanuel has come to us. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham through faith in Emmanuel. God with us, who is Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Messiah, for being our King, for being our Savior. Amen.